0: You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by CERBA, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a nonprofit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of CERBA and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. I'm joined today by Craig Kohan, London-based businessman, global entrepreneur, cultural enthusiast, and investor. Craig is responsible for bringing Coca-Cola to the Soviet Union, which now is, of course, a multi-billion dollar business. And he has many cultural achievements to his name, one of the most impressive of which would be running the torch in the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics. Craig is currently Chief Strategy Officer at AppyJet, and I should say, a good friend of Serbas. It's great to see you today, Craig. Nice to see you again after all these years. After all these years, we've been on stage so many times together? Over the last 15 years, yes. I think we age well. <laughs> we do. We do. I, I've lost all my hair, but that, that happens, you know? That's the good thing about podcasts. <laughs> that nobody sees, exactly. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Tell me, Craig, how long have you been involved in, uh, in Canada Russia trade? When was your first trip to Russia? How did you get started? Um,
1: well, obviously, my father started in 1976, meeting the Soviet delegation in Montreal uh, to the Olympics. And so I was 13 when I first got exposed to the Soviets, when Dad was uh, running uh, McDonald's and only McDonald's in Canada. So all the way back to 1976. So I would say
0: 45 years. 45 years. Good Lord. I think your father was involved in introducing McDonald's to Russia, but you probably were not that involved because you were a kid. Uh, But you were heavily involved in the introduction of Coca-Cola. Can you tell us some stories about that? How how did Coca-Cola get introduced to Russia? Well, Coke had
1: always been behind Pepsi in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. And when Dad opened up McDonald's in Moscow in 1990, I was uh, fortunate enough to be working at the Coca-Cola company on a truck in Miami, uh, door-to-door salesman at the age of 26. And so I wrote a letter to the president and CEO of the Coca-Cola company who was 15 levels above me and said, I think I want to move to the Soviet Union and try to get Coca-Cola in the Soviet Union. And he said, geez, Craig, no one else wants that job. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that, that's how it started back in 1990. I moved there on June the 7th nineteen ninety and began the unbelievable expedition and journey to, to bring Coca-Cola to the Soviet Union at that time. So you started living
0: permanently in Russia in June of nineteen
1: ninety. That's correct. I was the first Coca-Cola employee in the in the former Soviet Union, and I think there were maybe twenty business people from the West at that time in all the entire country. Remember there were there were no fax machines back then there was no internet there was no email uh, nobody spoke uh, english it was a very very different place it was all done by telex wasn't it do you remember that of course it was all done by te- telex it was fantastic it was a, it was a great time so you know there's no such thing as brands as you remember so there would be the malako magazine or the mm-hmm. in the milk store or the cheese store or the meat store uh, there was no there was no brand. There was no Impossible Foods
0: or Beyond Meats or Coca-Cola or Pepsi. It didn't exist. Now, didn't you end up getting Coke put on the table at one of the summit meetings? I'm trying to remember. What, how, what. What's the story behind that? So when you're
1: 26 years old, you feel like you're invincible. And one of the things that I really hated was Pepsi was always on the summit ta- tables between Khrushchev and Richard Nixon, as an example, back in the the old days. So, I promised the board of the Coca-Cola company that I would get Coca-Cola on the summit table between Bush and Gorbachev, which was a very difficult thing. Obviously, it has to go through the Kremlin. It has to go through the tasters at the Kremlin. It has to go through uh, the KGB at the Kremlin. The head of the tasting group was a 28-year-old beautiful Soviet woman that I had the chance to meet and greet And through a number of different um, iterations with her over many, many evenings, she uh, finally allowed the Coca-Cola bottle to be on the table versus the Pepsi bottle. That's how we got it on. So I got got a telex, and I'll send it to you. I got a telex from Don Keogh, who was the head of the Coca-Cola company at the time. He goes, I saw it on the table. I know who put it there. I don't want to know how it got there. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Uh, International man of mystery, shall we say. And that was the first time. There was no Coca-Cola in the country. That was the first time. So we started big in the Kremlin, and then we worked from there. And I have many stories to share with you at the right time.
0: Well, I can remember living in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and you're absolutely right. It was all Pepsi, Pepsi, Pepsi-Cola in Cyrillic letters. There wasn't a Coke to be had. So I was... uh, uh, shocked and pleasantly surprised when I started traveling in the early 90s and discovered that Coca-Cola had finally found its way to, to the Russian store shelves.
1: But the, the story of us getting there is interesting. It, it, it's uh, many phases. So phase number one was try to understand how the system works. So I spent six months you know, riding on the underground, working at Tchaikovsky, Shampansky, Zavod, working at the place that produced um, Fanta for us and Pepsi, saw that the the concentrate from Pepsi or Coke or ever would go in very dirty bottles. Uh, people would be corrupt on the way that they would distribute the product. The bottles were all the same. There would be very dirty uh, facilities. And this was all the Soviet system. And I could see, once I understood that, I sent ol- old movies to the to the board of directors. And I said, I think it's time for us not to use the system and build our own factory. You're talking about to make the bottles. To, to make to make Coca-Cola in the Soviet Union, not use the Soviet infrastructure. Oh, nice. Pepsi was using the Soviet infrastructure. So after those those six months of exploration, I went to the board, I asked for tens of millions of dollars to build the first factory. They said, yes, and they said, get it done. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing then. So that was state <laughs> one. How are you going to build a factory in the Soviet Union when the Soviet system is crumbling and there is no way to lease land? There is no way to build, you know, bring in your own manufacturing facility. So it was a great adventure as I entered stage two.
0: Supply chain must have been a challenge. I mean, how, how do you even get, you know, safety equipment or or, or anything to the factory when uh, uh, when the Soviet Union was just entering the world stage at that point? So the
1: way we got the deal done is I, I met a person by the name of Marshall Akramayov, who unfortunately committed suicide um, in the Kremlin. He was a senior government official. He was so upset by the downfall of the Soviet Union. He created. He, he, he actually he committed suicide. But he said, I like the Coca-Cola system because it's a system and our system is crumbling. And so let me find land for you. So him and, and the mayor started looking for land. And what I realized is how do you get to the mayor of Moscow when you're a 26 year old foreign business person that doesn't speak the language? You find out when he's flying to New York and you sit beside him on the Aeroflot flight um, in business class, which is a exactly oh, good look. Now, which mayor are we talking about? Popov here or Luchkov? We're, we're talking Popov. Luchkov was his deputy. I sat beside Popov for eight hours on the flight to New York and convinced him that it was a good thing to put a Coca-Cola factory. And that started a year process of getting 21 signatures on a piece of paper to lease land that was not leasable. There was no no way to lease land back then. So I had to go to the Kremlin and create new laws with the Minister of the Economy. Uh, Every Tuesday, I focused on the sauna. With Lushkov, as he beat the shit out of me, trying to make sure that I was tough enough. Lushkov himself, good oh. lord! Oh, Lushkov, yeah, beat the shit out of me every Tuesday, on my back in the sun. <laughs> Lucky which, you. <laughs> which was which, which, which better, better me than you? I was going to say, aren't you the fortunate one? <laughs> yeah, I think on December seventeenth, uh, I remember, I'll never forget this. December seventeenth, after running around Moscow for months getting 21 signatures across every single department to get the land and permission to make this happen. I walked into Lushka's office and he saw all the signatures. He was the last signature. And he gave me the biggest, most profound, wettest kiss on my lips I have ever had from any human. Oh, Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) he He said, nobody knows. From the West, how you made this happen, but I do thank you for pushing so hard, and that was an incredible um, honor to to have that signed piece of paper and then start the. That's an amazing
0: story. Site. Lushkov was quite uh, was quite the figure for many years in Russia in the 1990s. Uh, he could have even been president, some people said, but uh, yeah. somebody else took that spot. That's amazing, and it was was the factory in Moscow, the Coke factory. Yeah, it was in um, a place called. Um, va
1: and Sontseva oh, so had Sonsova, a very sure. Sontseva, Sontsky the Sons of the Sontsky family was a very tough um shakedown mafia family that lived opposite our
0: factory. Very tough guys. The, the sons band was was the bandits of Sontseva were quite famous in the nineties, yes. They were
1: famous. They were so famous they put a rocket propelled hand grenade into my office at five in the morning. The day before we were supposed to open the factory,
0: and they I shot that the hand spot. grenade into your office. Did I understand you correctly?
1: A rocket-propelled hand grenade, which <laughs> is the one that came off over, over the top of the over the top from the buildings across the street, and they gave me a message. Obviously, that was a message: don't mess with the Sosnovsky family. And I, I have never had any trouble in in, in the Soviet Union. I've never been sh- shaken down. I've never. Been asked for bribes ever because um just I've, I've been very lucky and i speak the language and etc cetera, etc cetera, which i'll tell you about in a second so
0: after the hand grenade incident you didn't have to pay pay some local boss uh, you managed to get around that
1: no never so i walked up to the head of the local boss and i said why would you do that we're bringing tens of millions of dollars you know hundreds of millions of dollars into the country we're going to employ thousands of people why would you put a rocket-propelled hand grenade through my office and he looked at me in a little bit like a kid and said, I just want my guys to get jobs. And I said, Interview and you get the jobs. And he hired some <laughs> of his people to be
0: legitimate drivers. So that, that's, you know. You told him there are better ways, better ways to get attention, right? <laughs> much better ways, much better. So Craig, we've talked about Coca-Cola and your achievements there. Let's switch gears now to arts and culture, specifically Cirque du Soleil, whom you introduced to Russia. I read that Cirque sold more than three million tickets since opening here, which is an impressive figure. Tell us the story there. How did you launch Cirque du Soleil in Russia?
1: I was with Coke there for for
0: many years, four
1: years, and then on and off until 1998. And then I needed a break. I got a phone call from my dad, who knew uh, Guy La Liberté and Daniel Lamar, the CEO of, of Cirque du Soleil, and he says, "Craig, do you want to do you want your second round in the Soviet Union?" And I have. to on telling you more about my first round a little later in this podcast but uh the second round i said yeah sure let's do it let's do it and so uh another adventure ensued Lushkov was still the mayor i was a glutton for punishment in the sauna again and uh, <laughs> we brought cirque du soleil in 2009 to moscow it was the first you know large big big shows uh, that were there permanently for a, a very long time We uh, launched it with uh, Eurovision in 2009. We sold um, tickets to Veracai at the early at the early start, and then it was an amazing ten years of fourteen shows uh, all over the country uh, touring the shows. Now, did you use an existing circus facility, or did you have to build? I think you had to build one, didn't you? No, no, no. Of course, we use uh, we use touring facilities. So we use we brought our own system in and. Hundreds of millions of dollars of investment over over the course of time. Thousands of artists uh, displaying their their amazing talents to the Soviet. We made a deal in two thousand and eleven to rent the Kremlin Palace, and this is when Putin was coming back, and there was some there was some trouble on the streets. We cut a deal to rent the rent the place for I think it was twelve weeks, first time ever. You know, people have gone there and played once. We rent the whole palace, five thousand seats. We brought a show in, and we sold out every night. We sold 365,000 tickets. It was the number one largest selling show in the world at that time um, at the Kremlin Palace over and over and over.
0: So it was an incredibly wonderful experience. What a great venue. What a great venue. I remember the opening night of Cirque du Soleil. Do you remember yeah. standing with me in line or meeting, meeting me in line, and I saw your son Jonas. He must have been 10 years old then. Yeah, he was, of course, he was ten. My daughter Amber was uh, eight at uh, nine at the
1: time, and uh, they they grew up with me in the, in, the, in Russia during those times, which was wonderful. Even though I was flying back and forth from London to, to Moscow at that time.
0: I have to ask you. You said uh, you said uh, chapter two was this, but I didn't finish chapter one. We'll get back to that. Did I cut you off? And tell me tell me what more you can tell us about chapter one. I so know you, you had a you... I know you had a a romance with a, with a with a Soviet actress. Uh, I can't remember her name. tell us what you wanted to tell us. Is that the Soviet actress that you wanted to
1: date
0: at the time and I actually got the <laughs> I I point. I, I have no idea what you're talking about, but no. I don't remember I don't recall dating any Soviet actresses in my in my time. So
1: you know, obviously when you're twenty six and you're single and you're representing the Coca Cola company and it's nineteen ninety one, it's a wonderful time to meet, you know, people from other cultures so i met this soviet actress named tatiana i won't tell the last name because it might be not appropriate but she was okay. the number one the number one soviet actress at the time and i fell in love with her and she said craig georgievich yes minya," as in craig if you want to sleep with me you you must speak russian and at the time i was not speaking russian at all oh what an incentive It was an amazing incentive. Six weeks later, I was speaking incredible Russian in her apartment, having a bottle of vodka, cucumbers, and tomato in her kitchen. We made love, which was wonderful. Obviously, in your your 20s, it always is wonderful. Very romantic. This podcast,
0: so this podcast is PG thirteen, just to let you know. We
1: we didn't say anything wrong. We said making love, and that's a wonderful. Of fact.
0: course, of course, of course. I'm I'm giggling as we speak. <laughs> but uh, no. And so so, so Tatiana, you were in her kitchen, and you learned Russian from her. Is what you're telling us over the course, and so many many other wonderful
1: artists. But um, making love, I pass out. I turn around. I hear a pointing at my head. Is a Kalishnikov with two guys in her apartment have broken into her apartment. Are you kidding? Were these her guards? They pushed me out into the street. I am butt naked, minus 20 degrees, over at um, by the Aerostar Hotel, which is Olympuski. I walk from Olympuski to Plotnikov, which is Oktoberskaya Dava, naked. Are you kidding me? No, I, that, you can't make this stuff up. Look, is our butt. I mean, that's a that's a that's a two mile walk, a three mile walk. Yeah, it was it was cold. It was very very cold. And these were KGB guys that said to me, "You will not, as a foreigner, date our most famous uh, Soviet actress. Don't touch her again."
0: Astounding. <laughs> and that was the end of your romance, or did you or did, were you were you not going to be intimidated? How how did that end up? Here's what was amazing. Um, that was.
1: November of 91, the end of December, it all crumbled. KGB crumbled, the empire crumbled, as you know. The KGB came to me afterwards and said, here's your file. You're free to do whatever you want. And so we continued our romance for, you know, a year and that was it.
0: <laughs> Good Lord, Sa- saved by the bell, as they
1: say. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. So that's the, that's how I learned Russian. I learned Russian from Tatiana. I learned Russian from Sergey Mazayev, my buddy who's a uh, Morality Codex, a great rock star. Um, yeah, my, my artistic friends were wonderful back then because there were no businessmen. Like businessmen, right? You know, the, the word businessman doesn't exist in Russian. Businessman,
0: they, they take it from English. Yeah, they call each other businessmen. It's a, it's a Russian Russian word now, or businessmen. Yeah. So you, you never had formal training in Russian. I, I've heard your are Russian. It's pretty good. Yeah, no, I never had formal trading, but I
1: was forced to speak it um, because no one else spoke it back in 1990, And if you're going to understand the culture, you better dig in, you know, and, and learn it and appreciate it and experience it. And I, I love the Russians for many reasons, which I'd like to share with you.
0: So tell us some stories. I know you you mentioned, Sergei Mazayev, the famous uh, uh, rock star of Russia. I know you were friends with Andrei Boltenko, the um, journalist and uh, editor-in-chief of Channel One. Is that not right? Do you have any stories about them?
1: Yeah, I have tons of stories. Um, Where where do we start? So I'd say (laughs) Mazayev. Mazayev started his his morality Codex, which has sold millions of albums 25 years ago. And I think I... I gave him five thousand bucks in cash to do his first video, back then, oh, and he's really? he's been a friend ever since, which is wonderful. Uh, Andrei Boltanka, who did the opening ceremonies for Sochi, uh, the two thousand and fourteen Olympics, I've done many shows with him, um, with Cirque du Soleil and, and others. So he's a, he's a great friend, and so I think what I what I love about the Russians, and forget the narrative today and forget the narrative since the 1960s. I really, I I, I don't care about the narrative, the political narrative. What I love about the Russians is they are warm, they are kind, they are heartfelt. If you're a friend, they will back you up, whatever it takes. If you're sick, they'll take care of you. If you're down and out, they'll take care of you. And so I really think that them as a culture of people, that might be that might be the FSB calling about the story that.
0: that I yeah, might that's the the, the uh, deep Russian soul, as they say. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I love the Russian soul. I love the Russian soul because it's it's very real. And so if you don't have that and you haven't experienced it, you don't really understand Russia. It's a wonderful thing. It really is. And that that relationship all the way from my dad meeting Yakovlev in 1976, who was the theologian behind Perestroika and the soviet ambassador to, to canada at that time and he was my basically russian uncle um over you just you just don't know how wrong our relationship is with russia now because we don't understand them they look like us they have a different you know they they, they think that everyone thinks they're european but they are incredibly respectful of themselves and when you have that respect for them they respect you back.
0: Uh, you're taking the words right out of my mouth, Craig. You won't believe I, I gave those same words at a speech to uh, 200 people in the USA uh, about a month and a half ago. So re- all you need to do is respect the Russians and they'll respect you back. But uh, we seem to have trouble doing that in the, over the last uh, five to seven years, unfortunately.
1: And, 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 you know, it doesn't really matter who makes the first move. You
0: know? It's
1: the, the yeah. first move, the one that's the hardest. And as soon as that happens, everything else falls away.
0: Well, there's a U.S.-Russian summit just uh, just a few weeks from. Uh, we're, we're recording this in in late May, so we'll see what happens at the summit in mid June. Maybe uh, something positive will come out of that. Who knows?
1: I'm I'm hopeful. I I
0: I'm, I'm hopeful that there'll be some some road
1: to uh, recovery and reconciliation for sure. But I think that the other thing I think about Russia it's a matriarchal society masquerading as a patriarchal. Really. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that. I believe, you yeah, know, you mean women the women are in charge. Country. I believe that the women are in charge of the country deep down. That's why it's called Mother Russia. It's not in Germany. It was called the Fatherland. Uh, mm-hmm. back then, but It is Mother Russia. And I, you know, in, at Cirque du Soleil, I only hired women. So my second time around, I had 30 women working at Cirque du Soleil, only one man. Now, do you mean, you're not talking about
0: the the performers,
1: you're talking about the
0: administrators?
1: The administrators, the business people, the logistics people, uh, the people that got it done, the finance people, they were incredible. Obviously, the performers were half and half always, but um, I think it's a a matriarchal society. And uh, once you understand that, you respect it much more, much more.
0: You mentioned funding the first video of Sergei Mazayev, uh, and didn't he perform at the Sochi Olympics? Were you at the Sochi Olympics? Did you, did you see the Canadian team there? Did you have any experiences? I did. I was asked to uh, be the
1: ambassador for the Canadian team in 2014. I flew to Calgary in 2013 to brief them all on what it would be like c- coming to Russia. So I briefed them on what it's like to go to the sauna. I briefed them on drinking culture which I have a point of view on, which is interesting. So, yeah, it was great. It's great fun to be with the Canadians. And they obviously won the gold medal in hockey. I was there for that with my son, Jonas. Uh, watching them beat Sweden at the time was incredible. And very upsetting for the Russians to lose in the, in the semifinals or the quarter. Yes, I remember that.
0: I remember that. They,
1: they, they crashed out. Would you like to know my point of view on where, where it all went wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Tell us. I think it went wrong in 2014. So this is this is before the issue with Ukraine. No Western political leader came to the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. So Putin had really? spent all his money. Um, it was a huge uh, opportunity for um, Russia on the global stage from a sports standpoint. And every single G20 leader didn't come. And the reason they didn't come was because of the issue around gender issues that had popped up and communication to below 18 year olds of gay rights and lesbian rights and queer rights. And I will tell you, as someone who owned part of the Cirque du Soleil business in Russia, we have many, many gay and lesbian artists, and they have always felt incredibly welcome across Russia, incredibly welcome. I think the West got it wrong, and that was a slap in the face to Putin, and it, it really started a, a downward spiral in the relationship. That little moment there, I think, was a real downward spiral, because then it was about
0: respect. And it's just, and- been, it's just been incident after incident since then. You're absolutely right. Uh, it started with gay rights, because the Russians passed a law that uh, the LGBT community believes is restrictive. But it's funny that we don't see the same protests uh, against the Saudis, who also don't respect gay rights, against the Iranians who don't, or against uh, many Asian societies that don't respect gay rights. And I heard a Russian interloper tell me the problem is that we're white. The problem is we Russians are white and everybody in the West thinks that we're like them because of that, and we're not. (laughs) He says we're we're an entirely different uh, culture here.
1: Well, not only that, I would tell you that my great friends who are women there said, Craig, you didn't have 20 million men killed in the Second World War, either by the Germans or by Stalin. And they wiped out a huge cohort of men. And so for Russian women, you know, it's a very different thing for Russian women because they lost so many of their men. So let's just separate out the issues, right? Separate out the... I, I am for gender um, identification and equality and equity on that side. I am 100% of the same stage. You have a whole culture that has lost 20 million men, so there's a, there's not as many men out there that, to produce with. Yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a real serious issue, and you know it's very hard for the West to understand that.
0: Yeah, it is. It is the the sacrifices the Russians made in World War II. And people who are connected with Russia know it. But it's hard to believe that their casualties were of uh, an order greater than ours. And that's not to belittle the contribution. I would never belittle the contribution of the Western powers, of the USA, of Canada, of the UK, to the great victory in World War II. Uh, but yeah. if you look at sheer numbers of, of deaths, uh, certainly Russia paid the price.
1: They paid the price, and that's why they,
0: they have such incredible honor
1: on May the 9th every year. It is, it is an important, important day. Um, would you like to know my um, little contribution to uh, nuclear disarmament? I would like to know your contribution. I didn't know you had any
0: contribution to nuclear disarmament, although I suppose at this point I shouldn't be surprised.
1: <laughs> my grandfather is from Dnepropetrovsk, which is a part of the Soviet Union. It's in Ukraine. It's an industrial city. It's on the Dnieper River. My father went there a number of times as a celebrity because um, he had brought McDonald's there. And so when I moved to Moscow, I I was picked up in a Yak-40 private plane by the mayor of the Nepropetrovsk and flown down because he wanted, you know, obviously Coca-Cola. That morning, I go to a wonderful tractor factory, the largest tractor factory in the Soviet Union. And I start drinking with the head of the tractor factory, who at the time was Kushma, who became prime minister? For the,
0: the future president of Ukraine.
1: Yes, the future president of Ukraine. And so we're drinking and drinking. And he pushes the button. He goes, Craig, I want you to see what we produce here. The doors open up, these huge, huge steel doors. What did, what? He says, This is what we do here SS 17 missiles.
0: That, you're, you're saying he was producing the missiles in that facility where you, where you were at, in, in Dnepropstorovsk. Yes,
1: yes, and all, obviously the obviously the Americans knew because it was part of the start to uh, negotiation and treaties, but he had all these missiles there without the physics and the nuclear warheads. He said, I said, you need to buy two missiles, and I'm I'm drunk by 11 o'clock. And I say... How much he goes, a oh, hundred thousand each. I say, done deal. So I trust, <laughs> I the money. Um, because I thought I called the, the CEO of the Coca Cola company worldwide, he goes, You're fired. Are you kidding um, me? Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're, you're totally fired. It's against the code of business conduct. You, um, <laughs> have no authority to, you know, basically buy missiles from the Soviets. I said... It's it's against the the Coca-Cola code of, of business contact to buy nuclear weapons, is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. But it, was, it wasn't the nuclear weapon. It was, just, it was just the vessel. It was the housing, right? There was it was obviously, the, casing, the casing. It was the casing. And I said, Mr. Keogh, um, I appreciate that you think this might be absolutely crazy, but give me a week. And so a week later, I had taken the casing, cut it into five made it into coca-cola kiosks and had coca-cola being sold on red square up and down spherskoy boulevard on the front page of the wall street journal and um the new york times and i have copies of that um as a way how coca-cola contributed to ending the nuclear race and i got rehired the next
0: day good lord what a story (laughs) that's hard to believe so, did you, so you didn't keep you didn't keep one of those missiles in your basement just in case uh, you get raided or, or 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 the burglars come. No, no, and I was
1: obviously the burglars did come in Russia, but um, they they weren't looking for that stuff. <laughs> you know, there was there was no nuclear warheads or no uranium. It was just the casing, and uh, that was a that was an amazing
0: day in my life. Amazing indeed. So tell me, I'm going to ask you something. Okay. This is a little personal. When you're dead and gone, what will we find out about you that will surprise us? Give us, a, give us a little advance notice. Our listeners can't see your expression, but I can. You're looking down. Come on, Craig. Come clean
1: with us. I, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm actually thinking if anything is not transparent in what I'm saying. And I don't think there's any secrets. I have no secrets. You've, you've, we've heard it all uh no i'll come back i'm sure there's something i've forgotten i mean like for instance i forgot that i was offered lenin's air conditioning system underneath uh, lenin's tomb one day you were offered to purchase that i was offered to purchase that i forgot about that as a, as a souvenir, or to, to to condition your office or what, what on earth was the was the story there you condition yeah it was cold. it was a hot a hot month in moscow and he said hey when you want lenin's uh Unit. So I, I maybe I forgot. I forgot that I brought fifty to hundred bags of cash rubles into my apartment in 1991 because there were no banking systems, and I counted it step by step, and then transferred it to 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 uh, Atlanta as our first revenue for the Coca-Cola system. Um, what else have I forgotten? I've forgotten that um, I've forgotten um, the after party of Cirque du Soleil after the Kremlin. I forgot to tell you about that. And, and uh, do you have, what can you tell us
0: about that party?
1: I, well, I forgot to tell you that, that there was, you know, 400 people there to very late at night at the Arbat, which was a wonderful celebration of the bodies of incredible people that might um, rock your world, I would say. I forgot to tell you about that,
0: too. Yeah, And, and it was where? Where was the venue? I forgot to tell you about that, too. You still don't remember the venue. (laughs) I'm sensing an R ring here. I should.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just but but you know what? What I haven't forgot to tell you, and what I what I would like to say is, as Canadians and Russians, we have to find a way to work together because we have so many things in common. We have. We have a sense of humor in common. Very funny. Yep. I'm incredible. I think Canadians are some of the funniest people in the world. I think Russians appreciate that. I think we are some of the best hockey players in the world, and we have to appreciate that. We have two of the largest countries in the world. We have wonderful women on both sides. We have smart business people. We have natural resources. So, you know, not getting together is really... Um, an awful thing. And I hope that we can, you know, we've been through these times before, uh, Canada and Russia. And I hope that you're right. The future is bright for both countries. And I, I want to be a part of helping make that, you know, continue to make that happen because our family has been doing that since,
0: you know, 1976. Your family certainly has made a tremendous contribution. Now, you also play the saxophone, I think. I right? Did you ever do that yeah. in Russia? Oh, this is what I didn't
1: tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when I'm dead. So my 30th birthday... I'm at uh, Stalin's dacha on the outskirts of, uh, you know, right by MGU. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes, I've been there. Yes, I know. I was, I was the first person to be able to use that dacha who was not uh, Russian at the time. Uh-huh. My buddy, uh, Miles, Miles, Miles Druckmann, for our 30th birthday. And so Yakolev was there, and Bakatin was there, who was the head of the KGB for a, a little bit of time. And Sergei Mazayev was there and sergey was allowing me to play saxophone that night and so he goes outside and we're all having a whiskey and he pulls out a doobie and obviously it's legal now in canada so that that's fine so so we can talk about this on the air okay (laughs) we can talk about it on the air but um i'm sitting there with Bakotin, the head of the kgb my dad yakolev and sergey mozaev he starts smoking a doobie i take a puff I pass it to my dad, who takes a puff, and I pass it to Bakatan, the head of the KGB, who takes a puff. And just imagine, 1993, Stalin's dacha, who would be actually turning over in his dacha, as these foreigners are smoking a doobie for a 30th birthday party celebrating, you know, international, druzba,
0: international friendship. Unbelievable, unbelievable. In 1993, you could do that. Unbelievable. Well, I think you've seen it all, Craig. <laughs> not all, but a, a little bit. And there's, and there's, you know,
1: I just think that there's, we forget how hard it was. And, you know, the Russians are free people to travel. Yeah. Uh, there, it might not be the democracy that we like, but there are great things that have happened. And I think future things will happen. That's great. They have to keep that country together. You don't want it to internally explode, obviously, for, because of all the languages and and regions and you know it's a it's a it's a dangerous country if it it was to break up so i hope we can make a hope we can figure out a way to work together
0: now i'll close by asking you two uh quick questions what is it that made you a leader first and foremost uh realizing that uh
1: leadership is about the listening that you do with others and asking the right questions it's not about having the answers it's about asking the questions and so I was very fortunate to grow up in a family with my father who asks great questions and mentors that ask great questions and allows people to speak their point of view and feel engaged in the process and you get the transparency and wonderful ideas coming from your teams.
0: Now uh, I'll ask you the last question. I know you're you're living in London now, you're living on a, for goodness sake, is that a boat? You're living on a boat in London. I live on a boat. Uh, Will you be coming back to Russia you're, you're young uh, you're full of energy it seems like the the, the the sky's the limit you've surely you've got more projects uh, uh, that are ready to be uh, ready to be implemented under your watch what are your plans what are your greatest priorities in life now
1: I am oh okay so this is this is new I am when well, I'm, I'm gonna be 58 next week in two years I am walking from London to Moscow you are walking from London to Moscow yes. Yeah, so I have made a commitment to walk from London to Moscow. There's a bit of, there's a bit of water in the middle. I don't know if you've, if you've studied the map carefully. What do you mean? There, there's some water between London and Moscow. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay, well, well, I'll do a kayak across the, you know, that's okay. big, But I'm, I'm going to do it to raise some money for um, a group called Global Citizen. I'm mm-hmm. going to do it to probably connect Russians, uh, my Russian friends and my North American friends and European friends, and I think it'll be a wonderful um, six or seven months of people. So anyone that wants to join me on my venture, please uh, don't hesitate. But yes, so I'll go to Moscow, and then we'll see what happens from there.
0: Okay. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. Well, you do have to let us know when that project comes to fruition, because uh, we will certainly help you promote it, and we'll help you raise money. All, all, uh, all joking aside, uh, Serbo
1: will be a part of that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm very excited to to keep on connecting with uh, Russia and make sure that the Canadian flag shines very brightly for the Russian people and the Russian flag shines about you for the Canadians.
0: Well, we we wave it proudly over here, we do. Thank you for your time today, Craig. It's been a a wonderful discussion and uh, you've been a great guest and uh, I, I will look forward to seeing you next time you're in Moscow. Great, I look forward to seeing
1: you too. Have a great day.
0: You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.